All right, good morning. We're all here and we're all awake, so that's a good sign, right? And we've had a little new formation, so you can see me better in the, in the pulpit, so that's good. We're in the sixth week of a series entitled Gospel Movement, in which we're looking through the New Testament book of Acts. Now, Acts is a book of history. It tells the story of the ancient church in its very beginnings after the death and resurrection of Jesus and how the good news of the message of Jesus traveled throughout the known world so that the message of Jesus would uh, spread and the situation that we're in where people in every country, literally in every continent, all over the world in all different kinds of languages now believe that Jesus is the crucified, resurrected, coming again Son of God. And this series is designed to be short. It may not feel like that to you. It's 10 weeks over 28 books. I could take this a lot longer if I wanted to. This is mercy on my end. Uh, It's designed to be short to give you kind of an overarching look at what this book is all about and how Christianity, the good news of Jesus Christ, spread throughout the known world. As I've been going through the series, I've done a lot of work to make sure to put it into a historical or chronological context and give you dates, not because I'm going to give you some kind of test and expect you to pass it, because I want you to see how the movement of the gospel slowly started to change people and to change the way they viewed each other. In other words, Jesus does not rise from the dead and all of a sudden, Peter has developed a fully developed theology of what it means to look like and be a Christian. He is developing this throughout his life. Everything is different the moment Jesus rises from the dead. Everything is different, but he is growing in his understanding of what it means to follow and believe in Jesus. The book of Acts starts in the first five chapters, and it tells the first couple weeks, the, me- the story of the first cu- couple weeks of the, 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 the early church, where Peter begins, and uh, James and John begin to go throughout Jerusalem and to preach a very simple message that is met with varying reviews. And the message goes like this, just 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter begins to preach, and his sermon goes something like this. You Jews who I'm speaking to, you had a part in killing Jesus, and God has raised him from the dead, and now you need to do something about that. You need to repent. You killed him. God raised him. Now repent. Many, many Jews and many, many people believed in God and believed in Jesus as a result of this very simple message, which was not the proclaiming of new ideas, philosophy. It was the proclaiming of a historical reality that God had become man in Jesus, that he had died, and that he had risen from the dead. And this message began to spread, and many, many Jews placed their faith in Jesus, and many, many Jews hated the apostles who proclaimed, fearing that their power structures were being threatened and that they were riling up the people. The Romans, in which the Jews now lived under the Roman control, are starting to wonder what's going on, and all kinds of division and chaos is going on. But in the midst of this divided world between Jews and Greeks, believing Jews, non-believing Jews, Greeks and Romans that are interested in the message of Jesus, the church begins to grow. And as it continues to grow a year later, the structure of the church is not big enough to support all of the needs that are going on. For the first time, the church is taking up offerings, and they're using these offerings to help support the poor, but there's, there's... 
division about how the offering should be split up. And so more structure is given to the church where, where a group of men is commissioned to help divide up these offerings. And so we're introduced to the seven deacons, two of which we have information about. Stephen, who preaches a message and is killed for it, and the message goes something like this. Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. And it's a long historical sermon of the history of Israel. And Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. And yet you killed him and God has raised him from the dead. Many Jews believe at the preaching of Stephen. And yet Stephen gives this message in a court setting. And the Jewish leaders, without even pronouncing uh, a verdict over Stephen's life, put Stephen to death by stoning outside of the city in rage, like a lynching. The next scene we have is Philip. This all happens, Stephen and Philip, a year after the church's birth in about approximately AD 31. And Philip begins to go to the Samaritans, which are a crossbreed of Jews. They're not full Jews. Uh, their origin dates back seven centuries earlier when the Assyrians took over Israel. And the Assyrians had this nasty little habit of when they took over a country, they would crossbreed them. They'd force intermarriage so that the national identity of the people would be bred right out. It sounds kind of nasty, doesn't it? And so these Samaritans who are kind of Jews but not accepted by the Jews, Philip goes to the Samaritans and he preaches the gospel. And this is such a radical thing because Jews would go completely out of their way to not even be in the same neighborhood as the Samaritans. Jesus, we are told in John chapter 4, goes right through Samaritan and he preaches to a woman and he preaches to, this, the, to a group of Samaritans who gather at the, uh, at the invitation of this woman in John chapter 4. But other than Jesus, the Samaritans and the Jews did not get together. And when Philip goes and preaches to the Samaritans, and many believe Peter and John are sent by Jerusalem. We hear Samaritans are coming to Christ. And so Peter and John, the apostles, are sent to check it out and they realize, no, this is really happening. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is now transforming racial boundaries. And now it is moving forward and Peter and John say, we want to be a part of it. But the Samaritans are not full Jews, but they're kind of like Jews. They're kind of half-breeds. And so they kind of have their culture, but not completely their culture. They worshipped one God, and they had different ways they did it. And yet, Peter and John accept them into the family. In week four, we looked at the conversion of a man that is really the focus of the majority of the book of Acts. His name was Saul, who for years, in his early 20s, had been persecuting Christians who had come to faith because Saul, like many Israelites, believed that purity to the nation of Israel and to their laws would bring about God's rule and reign on earth. And so Saul's motivation to round up Christians and to put them in prison and have them killed was not a a mission of hate, but a mission of hope and of love so that Israel's God would come to the world. But in such a misguided way, like so many religions have before it, thought that they needed to do so by a means in which those who disagreed with them were snuffed out, right? And Paul, on the way to Damascus, as he has letters from the chief priest in Jerusalem, in his hand, giving him the authority by the, the authorities in Jerusalem to round up any Christ followers that have started to follow and believe in Jesus in the city of Damascus, about 135 miles north of Jerusalem. As he's on the way to round up these Christians, 
he sees a light from heaven and a voice speaks, saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Remember, we looked at a couple weeks ago, we saw, we said, Saul knows exactly who is speaking to him. It's God, but he says this, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Who are you? And you know the name, but you don't know the, the identity of the person. And the Lord, who Paul, Saul can already tell, it is God speaking to him. The voice from heaven says, it is I, Jesus, who you are persecuting. And from that moment, Saul's life is changed. Saul goes from being a zealot who persecutes those who do not believe in the religion of Judaism, of the Jewish religion, to a man who believes that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Judaism was looking for, the Messiah, the one who would come and who would destroy evil and make all things new and all things right. Paul went from believing that that day would come to believing that that day had come in the person of Jesus and that a future day was coming still. And Paul goes to Damascus and he begins to preach. And the first message we're told that Paul preaches, we're not told the content, we're just given a summary of what he says. He goes and he speaks and he gave many convincing proofs that Jesus was the Messiah. And so Paul, the zealot, against those who follow Jesus becomes Paul the zealot for those who do follow Jesus. And last week, uh, Kyle, who did such a great job, he talked about in the sermon that I find one of the most fascinating in all of the book of Acts and the story I find most fascinating. We find that Peter, it's the, Peter receives a vision while he's in a city called Joppa, and he receives a vision that now everyone Everyone can come to Christ, no matter their ethnic background, no matter what they believe, no matter who they are, as on the same grounds as belief in Jesus. He gets this vision of a, of a sheet full of all of these animals in which the, Drew, the Jews would not eat. And God says to him in that vision, Peter, take up and eat. And Peter says, I would never do that. I would never go against my religion and do something that's dishonoring to you. And God says, I'm God, right? Do not call what I call clean, unclean. I can give you permission. I am the big guy. I am him. Do what I say. And Peter goes to a man named Cornelius, a Gentile. He was what they called a God-fearer because in the ancient world, there were strict boundaries that guided life, right? We have these today, but not in the same way. We don't feel it maybe at the same level for the most of us. In the ancient world, there were really three categories of people. There were slave and they were free, right? And the slaves did not have freedom. And the freedmen were a different economic status. There were male and female The males could hold property. The males could give testimony in court. And the women could do almost nothing in the ancient world. And then there were Jews and non-Jews. Jews followed a strict religion. And they had strict laws about how they were to interact with each other and how they were to interact with those who were not Jews. Jews could be friends with someone who wasn't a Jew, but they could not marry someone who wasn't a Jew. Jews could have financial dealings with someone else if they were a baker. They could sell that person bread, but they couldn't go into business with someone who wasn't a Jew. They couldn't have a partnership. They weren't to eat certain things. They were to have certain, they were to be certain ways physically that would demarcate them. Everything in life 
for the Jew, non-Jew, was a, it was a issue of barrier. And now Peter receives in a vision approximately seven years after Jesus' death and resurrection that all of the rules have changed. Do you know why this passage has always fascinated me so deeply? Because Peter, who Jesus says has the keys to the kingdom itself, right? Peter, who is the apostle above all apostles, who was the first one to preach at Pentecost the message of Jesus, it took Peter seven years to understand something that to us might seem so incredibly basic, that everybody is equal under Jesus Christ. Seven full years. The apostle who holds the keys to the kingdom itself had blind spots in his thinking that caused him to marginalize and mistreat others. And I think to myself, if that is the case for Peter, could it not be the case for myself? Now, here's the thing about blind spots, though, and I think you know this right now, right? Blind spots, we can't see them, right? We don't know where our own personal blind spots are because if we did know where they are, they would no longer be called, yeah, blind spots. It makes sense. So far, I do this morning, even though we lost an hour of sleep. Blind spots. And the only thing I know to help us with blind spots is an attitude and posture of humility and a connection to other people who we give a voice into our life. Yeah? An attitude and posture of humility and a connection to other people who we give a voice into our life. We allow them to speak into us. And the Apostle Peter went to this man, Cornelius, who was a God-fearer. A man who had not proselytized over to the Jewish faith, but who feared God and who was praying to God, God, please, if you are there, show up in my life and let me know of your presence. Have you ever prayed a prayer like this? God, if you are there, reveal yourself to me. Reveal yourself to me. And this God-fearing man, who, hasn't, who hadn't yet proselytized, because in the ancient world there were proselytes, and that simply meant uh, a man or woman who took on the national identity of Israel and who became a Jewish man or woman and followed the laws and who was baptized. And if you were a man, you had to have surgery too. Not pleasant surgery for a man, right? Circumcision. But Cornelius wasn't a proselyte. He was a God-fearing man praying, God, show up in my life. Reveal yourself to me. And so Peter did to him what would have been unthinkable if God had not come to him in a vision. He went to the house of Cornelius at the direct revelation of God and the direct voice of God, and he preached the good news of Jesus, that the hope of the world, Jesus has come, that he has died, that he has risen from the dead. And Cornelius and his whole household believed in this message and were saved. Just like at the Samaritans, now more racial boundaries are being 
taken down. And just like at the time with the Samaritans, after Philip preached to them and Peter and John went and vindicated it and went and saw, did this really happen? So too, after the message and the the repentance and the salvation of the household of Cornelius and the Gentiles, so too does Peter go back to Jerusalem and say, I have seen with my own eyes that Gentiles can receive the gift of salvation of the Holy Spirit just like anyone else can. And so, the message of the good news of the gospel begins to move, and everyone is included. The book of Acts is really a book of history of the church, but it it teaches us one overarching principle, I suppose, and it goes something like this, that Christianity, or the salvation, belief in Jesus, is open to all who receive and believe the fact that Jesus is the crucified, resurrected, coming again Son of God, and that he has died for our sins. And now, this brings us to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who now is going to push the boundaries even further on the message of Jesus and how it breaks down boundaries. For it is the Apostle Paul who very, very famously says something that goes just like this. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Now in Jesus Christ, there is not slave or free, there is neither male nor female, and there is not Jew or Gentile, for all of us are one in Jesus Christ. One family. Christianity comes along and says that all of these categories are contrary to the message of Jesus that Jesus has broken them all down. Christianity, for the first time, introduces a trans-ethnic and trans-local community or family. Trans-ethnic, racial boundaries don't matter. Trans-local, geography doesn't matter. In the ancient world, people believed in their local gods, and some of those were more important. But it was a very polytheistic culture and the gods were everything, and you believed in all kinds of gods, and gods had more power depending on what region you were in. They were regional in their importance. And Paul comes in and now begins to, in a very clear way, preach that all of humanity is under Jesus. It doesn't matter your racial background, and it doesn't matter where you live. And now, today we come to the present. Paul's first missionary journey. To trace, this, <laughs> to trace this, I want to give you a little background on where we've been with Paul because you missed some of this, and I want you to understand it. Paul, at 34 AD, is converted to Christianity on the light, the bright lights. This is going to be super quick. He goes for three years into Arabia, and he spends time with Jesus there, we are told, in Galatians. After three years in Arabia, he goes back to Damascus, and then he makes a very short visit to Jerusalem, where he spends some time with Peter and John. It's actually just 15 days he's there. After 15 days in Jerusalem, Peter makes his way north. This is around 36 AD, and he goes back to his hometown, the hometown of Tarsus, which was a very populated city center that was very um, intermixed between Jew and Gentile. For 10 years, Paul is in Tarsus doing we don't know. He's there. And after 10 years 
a man named Barnabas comes to Paul in Tarsus and says, you are going to be useful for the ministry. Please come back with me to the church at Antioch and we will strengthen the church. And so Barnabas goes to Paul, gets him in Tarsus, takes him back to Antioch. We are now around 46, 47 AD. And for one year, Paul and Barnabas strengthen the church of Antioch. And for the first time in Antioch, the people of God are called Christians. The Jesus followers are called Christians. Antioch then takes up an offering because a severe famine has come across the land and the Jews are the Christians in Jerusalem are suffering. And so the Christians in the church of Antioch take up an offering of money and send the money to the church at Jerusalem and they send Paul and Barnabas to deliver the money. And they go. And this is fascinating because for the first time now, Christianity is recognizing that there are not just local um, it's not just transethnic, it's translocal, that there is, a, there is a obligation or a responsibility to care for one another, not just where you live, but around the world. And so Paul and Barnabas take this offering and they take it down to Jerusalem. And after doing a short mission trip there, they return to Antioch. And now at 48 AD, man, that's a lot of history, they are sent out. And here's where we are at. Acts chapter 13 and 14, page 800 and 94. Page 894. 894. Paul's first missionary journey. His missionary journeys are going to be categorized. There's three of them. And the work of Paul is going to be categorized by four themes that I'm going to show you in just a moment, or that you're going to see as we look at the narrative. Four themes. First, Paul's message. That all of the humanity has been changed through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Second, his, uh, his uh, power and healing, that Paul's message is going to be characterized by power, acts of power, and acts of healing. It's almost as if everywhere that Paul goes delivering the message of Jesus, the, the world is being transformed and healed, turned back on itself to the way it should be. Third, division. Everywhere that Paul goes with this message of Jesus, there is going to be significant division. And fourth, and fourth, suffering. Everywhere Paul goes, there's going to be suffering. And Paul goes throughout the known world on these missionary journeys out of a recognition by the church and a commissioning by the church that the message of the good news of Jesus Christ is a message that the world needs to hear and that all must come under the jurisdiction the transforming power of Jesus. In some ways, this text, what we're looking at this morning, these missionary journeys set the groundwork for why we do missions today and why missions has been around for hundreds of years and it's looked different at different times. But the church has always recognized the necessity for the people of this world to hear that Jesus is Savior of heaven and earth, and that the, though the world is being destroyed by sin, that sin has been paid for and that Jesus can break the corrosive power, the destructive power of sin and of death. And so Paul is sent out with Barnabas on a missionary journey. I've got a map up there that is laughably small, but I didn't know how to do it any different, um, where it shows where he goes. Paul makes his way from Antioch 
which is north of Jerusalem, about 250 miles. He sails down to an island of Cyprus, which you can see sort of on there if you have really good eyes. And then he makes his way up into uh, Turkey, which is modern-day Turkey. We'll get rid of that map because you can't really see it, but many of your Bibles might have maps on the back, and you can look there if you'd want, but the ones we provide don't. Um, Paul makes his way out, and he goes first to Cyprus. As he journeys to Cyprus... They, they land at Salamis, which is on the, the, uh, the near end, the eastern end of the island, and he makes his way across to Paphos. And when he reaches Paphos, we're told about this in Acts 13, 4 through 12, he comes across, and as they've been preaching the good news of Jesus, he comes across a man whose name is Sergius Paulus, who's the Roman governor or proconsul of the entire region of Cyprus. Now, Cyprus is where, from, where Barnabas is from. And so there was all kinds of contacts that Barnabas would have had. But finally, Paul gets there, and we are told that Sergio Paulus, who was was uh, an intelligent man, wants to know more about Jesus. And so he calls Paul and Barnabas into his, his... the place from which he governs, his palace or whatever it is, and... When Paul and Barnabas get there, there is another man. His name is Elymas, and he is a Jewish sorcerer who was closely connected, apparently, to Sergio Paulus. He had the ability to do kind of tricks, you know, and um, he, uh, he was there, and he prospered under Sergio Paulus. And when Paul gets there, Elymas does not like that Paul and Barnabas are there at all because it threatens his economic and his power situation. It threatens his voice to Sergio Paulus. And so when Paul is there, Elymas speaks against Paul, and Paul says to him this, You son of the devil, that's fighting words, be quiet, for you are not going to spread your filthy lies. It's bold language. And he says, you will now be struck blind. And Elymas, who can no longer see, who's in Paul's language and his actions, has been rendered uh, useless. Paul then speaks to Sergio Paulus, who believes that Jesus is the Christ and establishes a community of Christ followers right there in Cyprus. From Cyprus, Paul makes his way and he sails to uh, Turkey and he lands first at a place called uh, Paphos, uh, from Pavis to Perga, and he makes his way north to a place called Pisidian Antioch. It was a massive city. It was called New Rome in the ancient world because the Roman, uh, Rome itself was overpopulated, and so the Roman Empire wanted to extend and build up these other cities so that the people around the world, all Roman citizens who were veterans, wouldn't come back to Rome because they didn't have enough food or space. And so Pisidian Antioch was a city of about a quarter of a million people with a large group of Gentile Roman soldiers who were veterans who lived off the state there. You know, we have a big VA here. It would have been similar there. And so Paul makes his way to Pisidian Antioch. He goes to the synagogue there, and he preaches a message. He preaches a message that is highly historical, which I will not summarize for you. Dear God, thank you. That's what you're all thinking, right? He preaches a message that is highly historical. And I've been thinking, why are all of these messages so historical? 
And the answer is very obvious from Peter to Stephen to now Paul. Why are they so historical? Because Peter, Stephen, and Paul are trying to locate this new movement, not within something brand new, but something that was rooted in the hope of Israel and now changed everything. The key that unlocks it all, right? Have there, has there ever been something in your life where you can't figure it out and then finally you get that one piece of information and now you see everything in a different light? Does this make sense? Paul is trying to do the exact same thing. And Paul says the crux of this message or the climax of it is in chapter 13, verses 30, verse 39, where he says now, through him, through Jesus, Everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. What is the message of Paul, which is the message of Christianity? That through Jesus, we have been set free from every sin. The message is a message of forgiveness that we are set free from every sin, a freedom that we could not obtain. It uses the word of justification, but a freedom that we could not obtain through simply following the law of Moses. Freedom. We've talked about it before. It's such a difficult, complex subject, right? Freedom. And there are some who are listening to me and I've been there in my own life in smaller ways and maybe larger ways than some. But those who have been stuck in patterns that they wish to God that they never got into know what it means to be enslaved by sin. Does this make sense? Patterns that they have such trouble breaking, but yet patterns that they see destroying their financial life, destroying their relational life, destroying their physical life, emotional life. And here Paul comes, and here I think is, in so many ways, the, uh, the allure or the draw of Christianity that in Jesus we have the potential to be set free from every sin. Paul is making this claim on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus for now In the pattern of what Jesus has done, Paul is saying that the power of death has now been broken. He is saying that the forces, not only that death itself is broken, but that the forces that lead to death no longer need have a hold over you. If you wanted extra reading on this, you could simply go to Romans chapter 6, a letter that Paul writes much later in his life, in which he says that the Christian is no longer slaves to sin, but they are slaves to Christ, which leads to righteousness and freedom. Not slaves to sin, but slaves to Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin, for we belong to a new family. We are children of God. And the corrosive, destroying power of sin and idolatry, and every form of human wickedness has now been broken. And this 
if true, is a message that every single person who has ever been captured and enslaved by these cycles would desperately want to hear. Because Paul believed that through Jesus and his death, the one God has overcome the powers that held the world in its grip and was destroying it. Saul the Zealot believed that Jesus had transformed everything. Well, after Paul's message, in which he gave it in the synagogue, right there in Pisidian Antioch, there was an incredible stir. You know, he left the message, and as he's leaving, everybody wants to be with the Apostle Paul and ask him questions about what he said. And they invite the Apostle Paul to come back the very next week and to speak, and so Paul does the very next Sunday. And we are told that when Paul returns, almost the entire city turns out to hear him speak. Everybody comes out. And after they do so, we are told that because of the popularity of Saul, that in verse 45 of chapter 13, that the Jewish crowds became jealous at his popularity. And now for the first time, we see the incredible division in the mission of Paul here in his first missionary journey. He creates a division between the people, one of the major themes, and Some people want to kill Paul, and some people continue to worship the God that Paul has spoken about, Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Paul stays there for a short time. He strengthens the believers, and then at a plot at his own death that he uncovers, he leaves, and he makes his way north to Iconium. He begins to preach that same message, that Jesus has risen from the dead and broken the powers of sin and death, and through him you can be freed in a way that you could not gain freedom on your own. From Iconium, he learns of another plot to kill him, and so he flees from there, and he goes to another city called Lystra. In Lystra, uh, a city that had a long tradition of following the Greek uh, Roman gods, Greek and Roman gods, who, had, who were very similar but went by different names. Uh, at this city, Paul comes and comes across a lame man who he heals, a man who had been lame from birth. And when he heals him and the people of Lystra sees, the people of Lystra believe that the gods have come amongst them and they believe that Paul is Hermes and Barnabas is Zeus because Paul's the one that talks a lot and Hermes was the mouthpiece for Zeus. And so they begin to, the high priest of Zeus comes and he brings bulls and he brings wreaths all ready to make sacrifices. And Paul gives a really interesting message there, doesn't he? He gives a message that goes something like this. It's different because his audience doesn't understand the same way before. And he says this, do not turn to these worthless idols, but the God who has created everything and who has given you every good gift, even if you did not know him, has made himself known in Jesus Christ. Paul stays in Lystra for a while, and he strengthens the believers. And finally, those from Antioch and Iconium run him down and find him all the way in uh, Lystra and stone him, they think, to death and leave him outside of the city to die. And Paul, the next day, we're told, in like really like a short, terse fashion, anticlimactic fashion, simply gets up and leaves and goes to the next city. He strengthens the churches and makes his way back. After going from Lystra, he goes to a place named Derby, and then he makes his way home, going back, retracing his steps, and sails back to Jerusalem. 
The message of Paul and of his efforts is a message of one overarching point. That the hope of the gospel is for every single human being. And that it sets those of us who believe it free from the corrosive powers of sin and of death. On this morning when you've lost an hour of sleep in which I'm almost done, I just want to have, I just have one simple challenge for you. One simple challenge. Which can be applied in two ways, right? So here it is. There are those of us who've placed our faith in Christ and the power of death has been broken for us. Do you feel, have you taken hold of the reality that sin no longer is your master? And for those of you who maybe are here and not sure if this is all true or daring to believe it might be so, I ask and pray that you might consider God who became man, who died and who rose from the dead so that sin might be forever and finally defeated. A sin in which we feel every day and we watch in our sitcoms and we experience in our workplaces a sin that we see destroy our relationships with each other and a sin that destroys us. If it is true that Jesus has destroyed all of that, that would indeed, right, be good news. And he has. And so let me pray that you who hear might realize that you have been called to a radically new way of life, free from sin. Let me pray for you. Christ, we, God, we pray that you might break our hearts so that we might be humble and softened to see what you would have us to do, recognizing that we all have blind spots. Help us to see the goodness of your son, Jesus Christ, who died so that we might live. It's in his name we pray. Amen.